Christians tend to hurt other Christians when they are hurting. You're listening to The Meaning in Christianity. In today's sermon from our series, Cannibal Christian, we look at Matthew 18. Is it possible that we've turned what Jesus meant in this passage from loving correctly into improper accountability and judgment? And now here is our lead pastor, Pastor Travis Stavenport. We are in week two of our series, Cannibal Christian, where we're talking about how to create a, a culture where Christians are loved correctly, how, how to love other Christians in our culture correctly. Last week we had a, to be honest with you, we had like a tremendous response to our first teaching in this series uh, from our sermon entitled, We Bury Our Wounded. I know it sounds pretty morbid, um, but we had a tremendous response. And we talked out of John chapter 8 about this interaction between Jesus, a group of Pharisees, this adulterous woman, and we saw how Jesus was an advocate for this adulterous woman. And then we actually tied that together with the fact that Jesus is still our advocate today because Jesus has never changed. He's the same yesterday as he is today as he will be forever. Amen? Do we believe in the same Jesus in this church or not? It's the same Jesus. We mentioned the fact that we are never more like Jesus than when we stand to advocate for someone else. And we're never less like Jesus than when we pick up the first stone and throw it at a brother and sister in Christ. I was excited about it. I, I actually got so many texts and um, messages from, from people in our church who were, who were just saying like, man, I felt like that was a, a teaching that really set me free from a lot of years of hurt and pain and religiosity. And I'm thankful for that. Man, I got to tell you, it encourages me as a pastor when I hear how God is using his word and how the spirit is changing our lives, changing our church, shaping our families, that's the good stuff. Amen? That's the good stuff. And so it encourages my heart to know about that. Today, we're going to continue on from last week. And I'm going to be teaching out of a text in, in scripture that I believe to be one of the most life-giving scriptures and also potentially one of the most hurtful scriptures, right? So depending on how you interpret it, depending on how you read it, and depending on the context and the application of it, it could be one of the most life-giving passages in scripture, but too often it stands to be one of the most hurtful passages in scripture. It's found in Matthew 18. We're going to be there in a minute. Um, but I'm going I'm to do this. I'm going to ask if you would. I know you just sat down, but would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? I'm going to ask if you use your Bible. Turn over to Matthew chapter 18. You can follow along in your scripture, uh, in your app, or you can obviously look at the screen behind you. It's very large. Matthew 18, we're going to start in verse 15 just to set this up. Jesus is uh, he's in a conversation with his disciples. His disciples asked him, at the beginning of verse 18, that he's, they, they say, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus begins this conversation. And about halfway through this conversation, this is where we're going to pick up in verse 15. Look, it says this, <clears throat> verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. What's that word? Let me hear you say that word one more time. Alone. Go and tell him alone. I feel like I feel like just right there, that is enough right there just to preach a sermon. Can I get an amen? 
That is enough right there just to preach. How many of us, when somebody wrongs us, we feel completely justified in going to everyone else around the situation instead of the one person who might have created the situation? We feel like we can go to every single person that supports us instead of going straight to the person who hurt us and wronged us. And I guess what I want to say about that is that when we talk behind someone's back, whether there was a, a fracture in the relationship or not, when we talk beside, behind someone's back, listen now, it is more of a reflection on who you are than who they are. When you choose to talk behind someone's back, it is more of a reflection of who you are than who, are the, who they are. And so Jesus says, if someone sins against you, first off, go to them alone. Let's keep going. If they listen to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. Take your posse. Take your backup. You never know what's going to happen, right? That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If they refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Lord knows how we feel about tax collectors. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am among them. I want to speak to you today from Matthew 18 in a sermon that we've called The Meaning of Christianity. The meaning of Christianity. Now, now, you see where the emphasis is on this word. You see, where, let me say that again. The emphasis is on this word. You see that? And the word meaning. How many of you would agree with me when I say that Christians have an, an incredible proclivity to being some of the meanest people around? Can we just, anybody agree with me? Anybody? Come on, we're Christians. It's okay. You can put your hand up, right? Right. And it's, to me, it's amazing that we can be so cannibalistic to our own kind when, when we ourselves know the depths of our own depravity. When in order to become, to call yourself a Christ follower, in order to, to come to Christ, you first have to admit your sin and your failure and accept forgiveness. And, and, and so if there's anybody that should not be mean, it should be us. And yet, we so often are people that hurt and, and cannibalize each other. So we're going to talk about this. Meanness is uh, something that sticks with you, isn't it? You never really forget somebody who has been mean to you. It kind of it sticks to your ribs. It's kind of it's like grits that way. It, it, just, it just sticks with you. You know when you have eaten them from the south, right? My wife makes grits, and if I eat them, I know it four days later. So this is kind of how meanness is. It, it sticks with you. Um, and, and I say that because if we don't rid ourselves from, from, from having been offended by meanness, it actually has... Uh, the capability of, of changing the direction of our life. How many of you know that if you don't resolve the meanness that has been done to you, it, it, can, it can leave you bitter? 
How many of us know that, that if you don't resolve uh, the meanness that has been done to you, the hurt that has been given to you, the wrong that has been done to you, it can actually lead you to resentment. And I can tell you this much, I know it is not God's will for you to ever be resentful. And so for some of us, we wrestle with this because we have been meaned. <laughs> we have been hurt. We have had people who have hurt us. And if we don't resolve it, it, it tends to change and shape the outcome of our lives. Now, I know for me personally, it's easy to go back in time and, and talk about a portion when, when I had, man, I would be honest with you, a very difficult time in life. Back in fourth grade. Doesn't get much harder than fourth grade. Doesn't get, I mean, but for me, being like a kid born in the 80s, really raised in the 90s, though, like, like fourth grade was pretty cool, except for the fact that we had just as a family moved from the great state of Maine to Ohio. Now, the problem with this was that all my friends lived in a different part of the country, very far away. We moved in, in, in my fourth grade year, which means I didn't have any friends. I didn't know anybody. Right, And I went to a private school, which is a very small school, and very quickly I realized that I was not good at making friends. I just wasn't. I was very quiet. I sat in the back of the room. I had a buzzed haircut, and I had glasses that looked like I stole them from my grandmother. And I wore an awful lot of turtlenecks. I don't know why. A lot of turtlenecks. I don't know why. Um, but I definitely wore them and hammer pants. So those usually tend to not very, you know, go very well together. The Velcro kind. Remember those? Man, they're so good. So those are popular. I wear them again. They're so comfortable. Anyway, that's not here nor there. Um, the fact of the matter, not only was it difficult for me to make friends, it was really easy for me to make enemies. We were a small class, very tight-knit group, except me, the new kid. And so fourth grade year goes by, and it's, it's, it's tough. I start getting made fun of a lot. I start, I start um, really developing some resentment and some hurt. And between fourth and fifth grade, right at the end of my fourth grade year, um, one of the kids in the class, one of the guys in the class started, I guess you could say, we, we have a term now for it, bullying, right? Pretty hard. In fact, there was probably not a recess that went by that I wasn't probably punched in the stomach or, or punched in the side or... Or what it might, not, or what it was. It was, it was really bad. It was getting pretty bad, and so um, I, I actually had this this one kid. I won't say his name because I'm still scared that he'll hear this and come after me. Um, who used to bite me, and he used to bite me in the leg every day, every day. This is a dude biting another dude's leg. And it terrified me. And I would go home and I would cry and I would cry, I would cry, I would cry. I would tell our teachers, but they never saw them do it. So I remember after months of this, months, I went to my dad and I said, Dad, I can't take this anymore. I hate my school. I hate the people I go to school with. Nobody likes me. I don't have friends. And this one dude just keeps biting me. <laughs> and he said, all right, I'm going to tell you how to deal with it. And my dad's a pastor, so I'm thinking like, all right, well, let me go get my Bible. Let me get my notes, you know, and uh, start, you know, like throw some Christian wisdom on me, some pastoral counseling, you know. But what he said next, I don't think lines up in that category. Um, he said, next time he comes at you to bite you, here's what I want you to do. You're bigger than he is, right? Yeah. Okay, I want you to pick him up. And I want you to throw him down onto the ground 
as hard as you can, and he'll never bite you again. And I looked at him like, are you, are you for real? Like, I, can I do that? You know, he's like, just do that, and he'll never bite you again. So I got to be honest with you. I walked into school the next day with a little bit of a different swagger because, I mean, I had, I had Velcroed my hammer pants a little tighter than normal, if you get my point, right? Because, because I was waiting for this dude. Now, listen, I'm not telling you that this, this is a, a good analogy, so don't judge me. I talked to you about judgment last week. Only God can judge me. Come on, get off that now. Come on, come on. Um, went out to recess, normal thing, playing football, and uh, here he comes. And it, and it might as well have been a scene from a movie because I swear he went in slow-mo and the, and the, and the track from the, the movie Eight Mile was playing behind him. It was just like, it was just slow-mo, him walking up with his posse and his gang just walking in, you know? And here I was standing all alone, just like that. Dude comes over, promise you, I can't lie, I'm preaching. This guy ran over to me, and he goes, and he bites my ankle. And, and I, 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 like, I don't, I remember this like it was yesterday. I remember like it, like it just happened. I don't know what went through me, but I think it's the first time I ever felt adrenaline. And it's like all of a sudden my body was just on fire, and I felt like the incredible Hulk. And I just... I just, in my mind, this is what happened. In my mind, I picked this guy up over my head and I felt like I was Sam, Samson pushing the pillars down on the Philistines. I felt like I was like, 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 the, like the Hulkster slamming Yokozuna. I literally felt like I was, and I threw him on the ground and he began to cry. And I felt good about it. <laughs> Can I be honest? Here's the problem with that. Well, there's a lot, there's a lot wrong with that. It happened right in front of a teacher. I went to the principal's office. Now, here's what you, you, you guys in school don't get now. Here's why you're spoiled and you don't even know it. Um, we didn't used to just get sent home. We used to get beat at school. I don't know if you know that, but my principal had a paddle. And in that day, I learned why there was a paddle in the principal's office. And then he called my mom. My mom came and picked me up, and it was very quiet because I, I think she felt like she was, like, driving home a death row inmate or something. And uh, Mrs. Davenport, your son's been in a fight. You need to pick him up immediately. I got in the car. My mom was like a little scared of me. And uh, we got home and my dad was sitting at the house. And I was, I was kind of scared because I did what he said to do, but I still got in trouble. And my dad looked at me and said, you got sent home early? I said, yeah. He said, did you get paddled? Yes, sir. Did you do what I told you to do? Yes, sir. That's my boy. <laughs> now, I am not telling you this story. By the way, that kid never bit me again. But I'm not telling you this story by way of, of, of advocating like, like, like violence in the face of meanness. Once again, only God can judge me. I'll probably get judged for that. But, my fact, but the fact of the matter is, like meanness is in our culture. And whether you're a fourth grader, whether you're a seventh grader, whether you're a college uh, student, a college graduate, or a senior citizen, we are surrounded by meanness at all times. And I'm not using this as an illustration to squash the meanness. I'm just saying, here's what I know. Matthew chapter 18 is a passage that is often used to, to demean Christians. It is often a passage that is used to hurt people. I've seen this passage that we've read and that we're going to read again. I've seen it used to, 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 to I've, used, I've seen it used against Christian men and women who have fallen morally. I, I, I've seen it used 
uh, as a passage to, against Christian brothers and sisters as a way to embarrass them when they have sinned. I've seen this passage used to isolate, disconnect, quarantine Christians who are in a difficult season in their lives. And, and the reason is because this passage is, also, is often pointed to as the blueprint on how we confront sin. And here's how most often this passage is read and understood. Well, if somebody sins, if there's somebody in sin, go to them and you call them out on that sin. And when they get upset or they don't listen to you, then you take somebody else to back you up. And then you both go after them and show them why they're wrong. And if they still don't listen to you, then you tell it to your church. And your church brings them up and says, these people are in sin. And then if they still don't repent, then guess what? You treat them as an unbeliever. You wash your hands of them and you excommunicate them and they're gone. And that's not on you, that's on them because they're sinners. And what I want you to know is that this passage has broken families this passage has broken churches. This, fam this passage has broken people's faith because we have misunderstood the premise. How many of you know that if you start with the wrong premise, you end up with the wrong purpose? If you start with the wrong premise, you end up with the wrong purpose. Man, this is so good. But this is also why this passage has the potential to be very, very, very hurtful. Because this passage is not primarily about confronting sin. This passage primarily is about forgiveness and restoration. Come on. It's about forgiveness and restoration. Maybe you say, well, I don't, uh, I don't quite see that there, Pastor. I don't see the word forgiveness. I don't see the word uh, restoration. Well, that's because you're not reading it with the right premise. Because I see it. I see it right there in the text. You know how I see it? Because I know the one who said it. And here's what I can tell you about Jesus. Jesus always leads with forgiveness. Jesus always starts with forgiveness. Always. Our advocate, come on, always begins with forgiveness. And he always leads to restoration. That's why in John chapter 3, verse 17, you're like, do you mean 16? No, there's actually another verse in the Bible next to verse 16. It's actually John 3, 17. And it says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved. Now get the meaning of that. Because we think that God sent Jesus into the world to point out all the dirty, rotten sinners. But guess what? God didn't send Jesus to point out all the dirty, rotten sinners and to condemn the world. He simply sent Jesus so that he could save the world. Jesus always leads with forgiveness. Jesus forgives first. Can you turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus forgives first? And I, and I want to show you why this is, this is so good, okay? I want to show you, and I want to prove this to you. Romans chapter 5, starting verse 7, says this, One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love. Come on, church. For God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus always leads with forgiveness. Now let me say this, as a church, what should we lead with? Condemnation, accusation, or forgiveness? When a church ceases to be a place of forgiveness, a church ceases to be a church. 
When a church ceases to be a place of forgiveness, a church ceases to be a church. And get what the, what the scripture is saying here. I'm a, little, I'm a little excited about this. Angry, excited, whatever. But understand what this passage means. It means that before you could apologize, before you could repent, before you even sinned your first sin, Jesus died for your sin. Paid the price for your sin. And put forgiveness on the table. When I, for, when I say that Jesus forgives differently than we do, I, I say it on the basis of the fact that Jesus forgives before there's any acknowledgement or issue of an apology. Jesus forgives first. I want you to turn to your neighbor again. we got to get this down deep. Jesus forgives first. Let me hear you say it. Okay, look at your other neighbor who didn't, who, who's going to respond better than the first one and say, Jesus forgives first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me ask you, if Jesus forgives first and Jesus is the one who we're supposed to be like, how should we go about forgiving others? We should be the people who forgive first. We forgive first. We forgive first. And please listen, because for some of you, I believe, I, I, I mean this, I mean this, I believe this has the potential to change the trajectory of many of our marriages here today. Because for some of you, you have been living with unforgiveness and bitterness for your spouse for years. Based on the simple fact that they never apologized to you. Well, I would forgive him, but he never apologized to me. What happened? I don't remember. That was like nine years ago, yo. I don't remember. Because I know we all talk like that. We're from Grove City. <laughs> this is what I do. I would forgive him, but he never apologized. I would forgive her, but I don't think she's really sorry. If your forgiveness is based on an apology, then you're allowing someone else to have control over your emotions. Jesus didn't wait for an apology. Jesus didn't wait for an acknowledgement of our wrong. Jesus forgave first. We need to forgive first. Please listen to this, please. Because for some of us, we, we have not forgiven. But yet entering into marriage, that's what it means, that, that we are choosing in that moment. When we get into a covenant relationship with that person, that means that we are choosing to forgive them for everything they've done, everything they're doing, and everything in the future that they will do. That's what it means to be in covenant relationship. Jesus Christ has already forgiven you. Why can we not forgive others? Yeah, if your forgiveness is based on an apology, then you're allowing someone else to have control over your emotions. Lewis Smead's theologian said this. I like this quote. Listen to this. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and then to discover that the prisoner was you. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and then discover that the prisoner was you. So maybe that's why some of us don't apologize. Others of us, we don't, we don't, we don't want to forgive, or not apologize, but forgive. Other of us, we don't want to forgive because we see it as a show of weakness, right? Many men, many of us men, we fall into this. It's an issue of pride. And to you, I would say that, yeah, I get it. While forgiving somebody uh, may cost you your pride, not forgiving somebody will cost you your freedom. Forgiving somebody may cost you your pride, 
But not forgiving them will, will, will cost you your freedom. Because unforgiveness leads to bitterness. Bitterness leads to resentment. And resentment, resentment leads to numbness. Some of you could save your marriages today. Today. Some of you, literally, could save your marriage today if you just forgave your spouse on the basis of Jesus Christ's love for you and not the fact that they haven't issued an apology yet. Jesus didn't wait for you. Don't wait for them. We apologize first. We apologize first. I could go on and on and on and on and on. But we got to get back to our passage. So, back to our passage. Now that we have the correct premise, which is forgiveness. Let me hear you say the word forgiveness. That's the premise. Now that we have the right premise, we can read the passage correctly. So we got to set that up. If we don't have the right premise, we won't get the right purpose. If we don't have the right context, we won't get the right conclusion. So here we go. Back to verse 15. It says this, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Pause. What are we doing here? We're already starting with the fact that when you are going to somebody who has sinned against you, what have you already done before you talk with them? What have you, come on, what have you already done? You've already forgiven them. So you're not going looking for an apology, are you? You're going just to let them know that they've already been forgiven. And also, can I just say this? Can I just say this? Notice, notice, it, it, like the second word, if what? Your brother sins against who? You. So we need less sin sleuths in our church. Like, I don't need y'all to be the Dick Tracy of sin. Like, you don't need to like, snoop around. I'm snooping around. I'm finding out that looks like a sinner over there. Better, better go find out what they're doing. And then I'm going to confront them about it. And then I'm going to. No, no, no. If somebody personally sins against you, you can then go to them. It is not your job to play the role of the accuser. It is your job to play the role of the advocate. We are better suited for the place of the advocate because it's a place of grace. And how much grace have we received? An unfathomable amount of grace. That is the place where we should be most comfortable, but too often we are way too comfortable with playing the place using the role of the accuser. It is not your job to accuse. It is your job to advocate. Let me, let me just, I'm going to go off on this. Listen, why is it that we just can't think the best of people? Brothers and sisters in Christ, why is it that we can't think the best of them? Why is it that we always think the worst of them? Well, it's because we know the depths of our own depravity. We know what we really are. We know our own character. We know who we are behind closed doors. And so, of course, they're like that. Of course, they wrestle with that. Okay, okay, fair enough, fair enough. But if Jesus forgave you, despite who you are, despite who I am, how much more should I forgive others? Who am I to accept an unmerited forgiveness and grace in my life and then not offer it in turn to others? Who am I to do that? I'll tell you who. Somebody who does not understand what the gift that is being given to them. Because if we understood it, we would share it. We would share it. So we don't need to be a church full of sin sleuths. Right? You're going to them personally because they personally sinned against you. And, and understand this, you're going to them 
to, to, to let them know that even though they sinned against you, you've already forgiven them. And not in like a haughty type of way. And by haughty, I don't mean good looking, okay? That's not what I mean. Like, he's so haughty. Like, that's not what I'm talking about, okay? I mean haughty as in prideful, okay? You're not going them in a haughty way like, hey, I just want you to know you really hurt me, but I've forgiven you because that's the kind of guy I am. No, no. You're going to them on the basis of Jesus. And when somebody sins against you, Jesus says, go to them because the purpose is restoration. If they've sinned against you, go to them and say, hey, listen, what you did hurt me. You wronged me. But I want you to know I've forgiven you. And I love you. How can we make this right? And if that person doesn't listen to you, either that person doesn't accept that, or that person just doesn't get that, then you take a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ, who wants to see restoration in this person's life take place. And you both go to them. No, 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 listen, listen, we're serious. Like, he's forgiven you. And we're only here because we know that everybody else around you has stones in their hands. We know that everybody else around you in your life right now is probably thinking the worst of you. But I want you to know we think the best of you. You're no different than us. We're all saved by grace that we don't deserve. Listen, we want you to know that Jesus still loves you. We still love you. Yeah, you hurt us. Yeah, you hurt me. But Christ still loves you. God still loves you. If that person still doesn't receive that, then guess what you do? You don't, you don't go and stand in front of your church. We're not going to have an open mic night where we talk about people's sins. Well, I went to them and they didn't listen, so I'm going to tell you everything they did wrong. I want you to come on down here. The price is right. Give us your name and your sin. That's not what we're going to do. First off, that's ridiculous. Second off, that's not what Jesus is telling us to do. Because when we do that, do you know what we do? We damage people. Hey, let me bring these people up front and show you why they're a big sinner. <laughs> you're not going to believe this. And you guys think you're okay? Listen, but how many families do we know that have been broken by this? How many churches do we know that have been broken by this? How many people, how many babies have we even heard talking about this? Right? <laughs> Lives are ruined over this when it's mis misinterpreted. See, we don't go and pronounce people's sins in front of a church. We go to our church as a family. And we say, listen, this, I know that these people stepped out in their marriage. I know that this, this happened over there. I know that they're wrestling with this. Listen, we gotta let them know that we love them. We gotta let them know that they're still forgiven. We gotta let them know they're, they're not too far away from the hand of God to restore them. And then guess what? As a Sea Life group, we, can, we begin praying for those people. We begin showing them that we love them. And then when they come to us and they say, when they come to you and they say, what are you doing? I hurt you. No, 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 I know you did, but I've forgiven you. Not on the basis of your apology, but on the basis of the fact that I have to because of what Jesus forgave me of. Like, who would I be to accept forgiveness when I didn't apologize and not give it freely to you? And then comes this portion of scripture where Jesus says, if they still don't listen, then treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. 
And for years and years and years and years and years, I've heard sermon after sermon, pastor after pastor, preacher after preacher stand up and say, if you go to them and they don't listen, take somebody else. If they don't listen to those people, then tell your church. If your church calls them out and they still don't repent, then wash your hands of them and let them go. But is that what Jesus is saying? When Jesus says, treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector, you know what it makes me think of? It makes me think of an old song that I used to sing when I was a little kid getting beat up in fourth grade. It's Sunday school. Maybe it sounds familiar. If you know it, maybe sing it with me. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was. Yeah, he climbed up in a. For the Lord he wanted to see. And we're not going to do it anymore. But you get my point. I seem to remember a story about a tax collector having an interaction with Jesus. Now, it's interesting. If we're to treat people like tax collectors who, who are unrepentant, for many legalistic Christians, that means that we make them an outcast and we let it be known. But what did Jesus do with this tax collector? He befriended him. He went to his home. He spoke truth and love over him. And Zacchaeus repented and met Jesus. It is not your job. It is not my job to convict people of sin. Guess whose job that is? That's the role of the Holy Spirit. It's his job and his job alone. My job is to be an advocate for people. My job is to help restore people. It's amazing when you, when you learn about, when you study, I've studied this word restoration so much. And it has its roots in this understanding. One of the first places we see it used is with this understanding of somebody with a royal bloodline who somehow has lost their way from the kingdom or the throne room and how then they are restored to a place of honor. Our job in helping to restore brothers and sisters of Christ is just to remind them of their royal heritage. Listen, man, you belong in the throne room. You belong at the place of honor, but you have, you have pushed yourself out, but I'm here to help. I want you to know that we love you. I want you to know that you're not too far from Jesus. I want you to, and if that person is not convicted by their sin, if that person is not convicted by the Holy Spirit that lives in them, well, guess what? Maybe the Holy Spirit doesn't live in them, which means maybe they don't know Jesus, which means if they don't know Jesus, then we should love them even more. Doesn't mean we kick them out. Doesn't mean we excommunicate them. Doesn't mean we ostracize them. It means we press in and we begin showing them love. It means that we press in and we begin wooing them to Jesus Christ. That's when we love people the most, not the least. Man, don't you want to be a part of a community like this? Don't you want to be a part of a community that says, man, come hell or high water, I'll walk with you for life. No, I'm not telling you that sin is okay. Sin is not okay. God hates sin because it separates you from him. But when you do sin, know that I'm not gonna give up on you because that's the way Jesus loved me. And for too long, this passage has been used to break homes, break families, embarrass them, push them out, break their faith. And the collateral damage has been Christians along the way. And we feel pious. We feel uh, very pharisaical. We feel very haughty about it. And we feel religiously okay. But I want you to know it is wrong. It is not what Jesus meant because Jesus always forgives first. We must become a church that forgives first. 
the church gets labeled as a place filled with hypocrites. You know why? Because the church is a place filled with hypocrites. And I'll accept that. Because the fact is we're all sinners. But we can be sinners saved by grace. And we can love other sinners who have been saved by grace. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from our series, Cannibal Christian at Covenant Church. We hope you were impacted by this message today. If you'd like to invest into what God is doing here in this ministry, feel free to give online at covenantchurch.us forward slash give.